you can save over 23% and receive a free copy of Deadliest Crash, the 1955 Le Mans Disaster DVD when you subscribe to Motorsport today. Three years in the making and using rediscovered and restored cine footage, the film includes eyewitness accounts from the Mercedes and Jaguar teams plus stories from spectators. It's a DVD all motor racing fans should own. Call 020-7349-8472 or visit motorsportmagazine.com to receive 12 issues of the magazine for as little as £46. Motorsport Magazine, for the very best in motor racing. Welcome everybody to another Motorsport Magazine podcast and this is one you are really going to enjoy. We have with us today Sir Jackie Stewart and it doesn't get much better than that. Also, if you need an introduction to Jackie Stewart, you're listening to the wrong show. Welcome, Jackie, and thank you very much for giving us your time today. Fantastic. Now, you're going to be the editor of Motorsport magazine for a month. Well, I've been crucified by motorsport for a great many years while I was a driver, and I thought it might be a good idea to try and, and change my skills because at some time in my career, motorsport thought I had very few skills in that direction, so I thought perhaps editorial work would be more in my line. Good answer. What a, sh- what a shame that Jenks isn't here today. Uh, I'm sure Jenks would like to have responded to that one. Maybe Nigel Roebuck would like, like to respond. Well, I, I think actually Jenks always had a, a very high regard for your ability. He camouflaged it very well, well sometimes. <laughs> yes, there were times, yes, when he, he, yes, he was a little over the top, I agree. But it was, the, it was, the, it was fundamentally, it was the, it was the safety aspect that, that caused the problems between you, wasn't it? Or yes, the, disagree- the disagreement. My regard for Jinx was enormous. Um, he was a really good writer. Um, but funnily enough, a very good friend of mine gave me a collection of motorsport magazines right through my period from 1965 through 73, every edition. And I had never looked back very much. And I'd read all the Grand Prix reports and some of them weren't very accurate by Jake's. <laughs> uh, thinking back about my own performances and so forth, at one point Jinks said the great thing about Stuart, and this was my first year, so there was a honeymoon period with Jinks and I, and he was giving me great credit for having done what I did in 65, but he was saying, the great thing about Stuart is he comes into a corner and when he puts his foot on the accelerator pedal, he never takes it off and it's right down to the floor immediately. And I'm thinking, now, when did I do that? Because I don't remember ever doing that. That, that, I, that was against my way of driving. I gently introduced the throttle pedal and gradually accelerated. But Jinx described it as he was obviously listening for all of this because he always had his ear sticking out somewhere, even if it were not beyond his beard. Uh, it, uh, it, it was, but he would either be at the master kink or he would be in some other precarious position. And he was listening for all of these things to see who was on the power and who was flat and who was not flat. In this particular case, it was Monaco he was talking about, and he was completely wrong, I'm glad to report. Um, Jackie, I mean, surely surely this was a valuable lesson for you in 1965, because from then on, you clearly never believed what you read in, in the magazines. Well, I've never much believed journalists at all in that respect. <laughs> Reporting, as it's sort of called, uh, 
No, I, I kid, because I've had a terrific experience with a huge number of really top journalists within motorsport for a great number of years, because I'm still going around Grand Prix races. So therefore, I'm still very friendly with most of the journalists. and. I have a great time with them. So I had Jinx was a special man, though, uh, and John Bolster was a special man. Uh, in their own ways, they were eccentrics. Even in those days, they were eccentrics, and so was Setright. Uh, if you think back to some of our listeners, will yeah. not know who he was, but he was an eccentric, and and that's rather nice because we've got a plainness sometimes and a colourless type of person who really doesn't have a style that you would be recognising instantly. Mm. And in those three writers, they, they had that instant recognition. Um, perhaps we should just say uh, Jenks is Dennis Jenkinson, who was the Grand Prix reporter for Motorsport magazine. The reason I put this in quickly is because we do have a lot of people listening who may not have read Motorsport way back when. Jackie, can we talk to you about the 2011 Grand Prix season? Uh, in particular, a lot of people are talking about Lewis Hamilton. Now, you are well qualified to tell us what on earth has happened to Lewis Hamilton. I don't know what's happened, but what has occurred uh, has been the number of collisions that he's had with a variety of different drivers, both very experienced ones and sometimes the less experienced. There was bully boy tactics that you would have not expected to see in certain racetracks and certain corners when he clearly was appearing to force his way through uh, on occasions, which the really great drivers have never done and never even thought about doing. Lewis, when he arrived in Formula One, I think was very impressed by it and drove in what I would call a respectful fashion to the formula and to the p people that he was participating with. As time has gone by, and it's been more prevalent in the 2011, the number of collisions he's had has been far, far too many, and he was doing some of them last year. That's mind management. You should not go where you know you cannot go at the end of the corner. You've got to come out of a corner unscathed because to finish first, first you must finish. And you can't do that by knocking front wings off and colliding with other people and even having bigger accidents than that. I'm afraid for whatever reason, his, perhaps his lifestyle has taken him away from the complete focus commitment and dependency of driving cars as his major focus in his entire life. I mean, people like Jim Clark loved his farming, but when he came to a motor race, there was only one thing that was going on, and that was a motor race. Now, Lewis is living a life now which is completely different. Of course, there's more commercial elements, there's more appearances, there's more activities that he has to take on and whether it's reported to be 75 days a year for promotional activities or if it were even 91 days that somebody mentioned the other day you still are being paid to do that and you're a professional and you finesse yourself to do that and and I've got quite a lot of experience of that because I was with large multinational corporations at the beginning of the commercial breakthrough in Formula One which means that I was probably doing considerably more than any of those numbers in appearances and functions. 
But I had to be able to differentiate between that and driving the car. You have to have a humility, you have to have somewhat of an inferiority complex sometimes when you get back into a car that may not always be the best car because that seldom happens, that you continually have the very best car on the grid such as he had in both his first and second year in Formula One. He's now having to stretch the elastic I think to a point where I believe his mind management's not in order. Uh, because recently out of the box, going out to qualify for the final run in qualifying, he nearly ran into to Massa, Felipe Massa. Yeah. And it was such a close thing. I thought, why is he doing that? Because it was just as they left mm -hmm. the green light. And, you know, if he had overtaken him, he was only going to be behind another car. How could that have happened? And had he done serious damage to both cars, it would have been a hideous error. And, and his mistake during the race again with Massa was one that I couldn't understand could have occurred. So there's been too many incidents like that that are unanswerable by me. And I'm a fairly keen observer of the sport. So I think he's going to have to recalibrate his life and let's say bounce the ball a little slower with a little less inflation in the ball and really live a calmer life with a calmer driving code. Do you think there's something to be said? I mean, you touched on it there. He came into the uh, you know, he was picked up by McLaren at a very, very young age. And he's never really been in a bad car throughout his career, even before Formula One. And someone like Jensen, you know, we've seen him come into his own this season. And he's been brilliant. You know, we saw it at Singapore. Um, but he has had those fallow years with BAR and Honda when, it, you know, he wasn't in a good car. And do you think Lewis is just struggling to actually cope with not being at the front? Um, and I mean, is that a part of it? Well, I, I can't think of that being the problem because all of us have had poor seasons. I mean, when I drove um, the Matra in Formula One, uh, I came from being world champion to driving the March in Formula One and the year later, 1970, and the car was not a winner. I mean, I got it in pole position in its first race. I won a race with it once, and that was the only Grand Prix victory, the real Grand Prix victory I had with a full distance. I had to just suffer in silence the inability of that car to be as competitive, for example, against a Lotus 49. Um, and it was a struggle to be able to do that. So you have to accommodate the fact that you are not in the, the fastest car with perhaps the best package. But you've got to deal with that. And, you know, if I drove the BRM fairly well in, in the 1.5 litre range when I started, when we went to the 3 litre and the H16 BRM, which carried more fuel, carries more water, carried more oil, to, to, to keep that big monster running, it was a very difficult car to win races in, and I never did win a race in it. <laughs> so you've got to take that as a driver, and you've got to adjust your mind as well as your driving habits to accommodate that. And that's what it takes to do it properly. And there's enough evidence in history of seeing that, that not everybody gets the best car all of the time. In a way, it could be that... <sighs> I suppose Lewis was quite spoiled early on, and I think that may still be mm. prevalent today because he really feels if he has the best car, he can always win. But when you overdo it and you have too many incidents, then you have to ask yourself, am I in the right zone here?
See, I, my theory is that because he arrived with the best car, which almost never happens, had the best car for the first year and for the second year, and I suppose it's probably very easy to start to believe, well, this is how it's always going to be. You know, this is what Formula One is. I arrive, I win, second year I'm world champion. This is, it's almost preordained. And now it's almost as if, I don't know, as though Vettel has sort of hijacked the career Lewis believed he was going to have. I think there's probably also slightly a lifestyle factor associated it as well because I mean uh, Sebastian Vettel seems to be very very focused very strict with himself he lives in a quite a modest fashion and I, I think he's really in control of himself he doesn't do a huge amount of travel he doesn't fly around too much he's not a jet setter I think Lewis has become a superstar uh, in, a, in, a, in a way <coughs> that has allowed him to, you know, he has a very attractive girlfriend who just happens to live in the west coast of America. <laughs> Popping back and forward there with a time change of eight hours minimum, maybe nine hours, is not the easiest thing to handle. I know when I was running the Can-Am series as well as Formula One, I took far too much out of myself trying to do two or three things at the one time that were even busier than the current racing drivers of today would do because I was doing ABC television at the same time, stock car racing, sprint car races, Indy car races as a commentator, as well as driving in the Can-Am and Formula One and the TT and a Ford Escort with with Chris Craft uh, and a whole lot of other formulas, you know, driving the three-litre Capris for Ford of Germany. All of that packing in took away something from the Jackie Stewart that should have been there. I scratched by, but I got an illness of mononucleosis because of it, and the following year, a duodenal ulcer that hemorrhaged because I was trying to do too much with what my human resource was. Now, Lewis might be engaging in some of that because he has done a lot for Santander and commercials with Abbey National. He's done a lot for Vodafone and commercials, but you can accommodate that if you discipline yourself where you cannot be doing the other distractions that, 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 that come into your life as well as be a top-line Grand Prix driver. Um, I think we have to move away from Lewis Hamilton because we have so much to talk about and perhaps some of us want to move away from Lewis Hamilton. Um, Jackie, uh, are we approaching, do you think, a period of total Red Bull Vettel dominance? No, I don't think so. I think both Ferrari and McLaren, and you have to say these are the three big teams at the moment, if you put Red Bull in with that, who have got top people managing them, um, top facilities, top technology, um, knowledge and background. I mean, Red Bull's the new boy in town, but it's sitting in Milton Keynes and Bradbourne Drive, which was Stuart Grand Prix. Same factory, same entrance, no more opulent than it was when we had it, but of course extended in size and extended in numbers. Red Bull are very well prepared for it. Metashish has done a great job at recognising that he's chosen very talented people to run his operation, to make it work, to be driven. He's rewarded them well, not just the top men, but the whole factory when they got bonuses for winning that first world championship of constructors and drivers. The, the, the whole employee base got the same bonus. Good idea. 
And from the floor cleaner, who was the same guy who was at Stuart Grand Prix, incidentally, to the same receptionist, who was the same one. So I have a, a pride within me. When I go there, I went with Christian Horner to look around. And I was just so happy to be there and so happy that everybody was keen to say, hello, Jackie, I'm number 65. Because we started off numbering everybody who joined. And they had a number. And that Red Bull have held on to. Right. And they're still numbered. Right. Uh, what, what, what number are they up to now? Oh, they're up to <laughs> 610, I think. But, but Ferrari are best prepared, perhaps of any team, with knowledge, background, heritage, history, as well as today's skills. And so are McLaren, with an opulence of a factory that the world has never seen. Um, and all of the equipment available to them and the relationships and everything that they've got. So those three teams, any one of them can come back and win in 2012. Mm. Uh, it will be difficult to be as dominant as Red Bull have been mm. in these last two years, but they don't have Adrian Newey. Uh, and he has been a major, major contributor um, in, in allowing Vettel to have the kind of dominance as well as Mark Webber because we mustn't forget him because he's a he's a player up there but yeah, I know you've been very impressed with Vettel this year and who, who couldn't be with the way he's driven um, such a young age 24 years old he's about to win his second world championship um, the way things are going and the years he's got ahead of him do you think he's gonna be one of the guys that we're gonna be looking back as, as, a, as a great in years to come I think it's too early to call him a great. I, I think everybody who comes along and wins in a dominating fashion, you could say was great. Uh, there's been lots of them that the media has accepted as great before they've really just come out of the egg. Um, you've got to wait and see how, for how long they can continue that type of performance with the mind management that goes with it because they can be distracted, they can be spoiled. Um, there's lots of things to take their mind off the focus. So therefore, in my opinion, um, it's far too early to say that. But I will say that he is the most mature 24-year-old driver that I've ever seen in Formula One. Um, and he's shown that this year. The number of times he's had an error, gone off the road, or done anything silly. I mean, he dropped out for sure mentally in the Canadian Grand Prix when he spun off. That was a, a dropout. It, it wasn't. It was his concentration that dropped out that allowed that to happen. However, having said that, uh, they're beatable. Of course they are. And, and the other thing is, how difficult is it? Hugely, it is difficult to do year after year after year. The mechanics, their wives get fed up. The designers, their wives and their children get fed up. They're never seeing them properly. They're never getting proper holidays. They're never getting care and attention. And when they come home, they've still got the, mm. the, the computer under their arm and they're still trying to work out the, the problem that they've been left with to solve. And the children's homework might not be assisted in the normal way or the wife might be getting slightly neglected and I don't care whether your name is Ross Braun or whether it's Adrian Newey or whether it was Ken Tyrrell it doesn't change I'm sure Neubar had the same thing with his family all those years ago so you've got to relate to how it is that what breaks down that potential of consistently winning because yeah. the team's got the best simulator, got the best wind tunnel, got the best designer, got the best electronics person. Those people burn out, whoever they are. Yeah. 
Do you, do you ever think about, uh, you, you know, by the, by the time you finished your career, you've always said you never looked back and you never, you never regretted uh, leaving at the end of 73 and never coming back to Formula One. Do you ever think about what might have happened if you had carried on? I think I could have had a good run at the World Championship in 74 because I knew the car was going to be good and Derek Gardner was still there and that relationship was still growing and the Ken Till factor was still there in, in an abundance with an energy level and a desire and a focus. The Ford Motor Company was still there. Walter Hayes was still there. Um, there were people associated with his that were there. My mechanics were all there. Um, Roger Hill and Roy Taub and Roland Law were still there and Neil Davis was in the background but absolutely managing the factory, for example. All the same people. And I had a teammate who was gonna you know, make me drive that wee bit faster and because of my experience and knowledge I felt as if I could still have done that because in my very last year as a driver I learned more than I did in any other year of my career mm. because I could consume more information. I, I knew all of the silly stuff and that was banked and out of the way and I was now seeing other ways that I could do something better which I could never possibly have seen two to three years before because of my maturity because of my age because of it was no rush for me to drive a racing car anymore it, it all come came very easily so I think I had more than at least one year ahead of me where I could have been in contention let's put it to the world championship but it wasn't the right thing for me to do I was very lucky that I chose exactly the right moment to retire never wishing ever to go back and race again Jackie, I remember you telling me once that, uh, I guess it was a number of years later, was it had been 80, 81 thereabouts, there was a serious offer to you to come back as a driver that you said you didn't really think about it, but you kind of half did because it was, it was such a, a sort of huge, um, a huge offer and, and, a, you know, and a task that potentially appealed in a way. Yes, it did happen. But I actually didn't give it serious thought. No, uh, it was no. a huge number. It was close to six million at the time, uh, not pounds, dollars, which was huge money in those days. It's still a lot of money. But I mean, um, I, I really didn't give it any serious thought. I knew I was doing the right thing by not going back. I thought if I go back, I've got to go right in at the top. I've got to deliver and people expect it. And. I had been out of it long enough that I'm sure I wouldn't have had that edge that I that I had because I was finessing all of my skills by the end of my career. My last year was a really good year for me because the previous year my Judy and Lawser had upset my whole deal and the previous year I was doing far, far too much with Indy, no, not with Indy, but Can-Am and Formula One and ABC and Ford and Elf and Goodyear that it almost took away from my motor racing experiences. And I just didn't think seriously about it. I, my children, my family, Helen didn't deserve it. And I wasn't stuck for money. I still had a huge career to, to in other areas of business. And in the end, I've made much more money out of my business life than I have out of my sporting life. But it was appealing that people asked me, but it wasn't realistic for me with the 
I think the maturity I had gained by then to seriously think about it. And you were at that time actually younger than Schumacher was when he when he came back. Oh yes, and keep in so mind that I five years after I finished, I drove all the Grand Prix cars, yeah. and ten years after I finished, I drove all the Grand Prix cars, and and actually. The five years after, I was absolutely on the pace. And the second one, I was struggling to be on the pace, but still delivering the same lap times as they were. But it was taking more effort <laughs> than I would have liked to have exercised. So, I was, and I was still attending all the races. That's the other thing. I had a huge amount of races that I was going to. So, I hadn't left the sport. I was getting the buzz of the sport without having to drive. And that stimulation, with the satisfaction I was having with my other endeavours, gave me every bit as much pleasure as it would have been from driving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jackie, we have to take some questions from our readers, uh, because a, a lot of them have taken the trouble to send these questions in. And I, I like this one. It, um, Stuart Grand Prix scored a second place in its fifth race. So what's wrong with all the new teams in Formula One at the moment? Why, are, why aren't they competitive? Well, it was one of the greatest achievements that I had felt that I was part of within my racing career, including my driving. Uh, because to finish second at Monaco, Rubens Barrichello drove a great race in the wet. The only car ahead of him was Michael Schumacher, and he had passed all the other cars. It mm. wasn't attrition. Quite often in Monte Carlo, you, you'll, get, you'll gain a podium because of attrition. But that wasn't the case here. It was a hideously wet race. Michael Schumacher even made a mistake um, going into Saint Devot and spun, and if it hadn't been for him, he probably wouldn't have kept the engine running. And we may even have won the race. But finishing second, I had never finished second at Monte Carlo. Uh, I'd won it. I'd won the Grand Prix three times, and I had won the Formula Three race at Monte Carlo. I I had been. Uh, I think I was third once. I think I think I was third once, but I was second. But the nice thing about that day was that Prince Rainier asked Paul and I to come up onto the podium because we had done so well, and they knew that it was only our fifth race and so forth. And it was quite a thrill being up on the podium yeah. uh, under these circumstances and for the team it was a huge boost because I had told all of our sponsors we could never r win a race for at least five years and we might not even be in a podium for five years and five races later mm -hmm. we were on a podium um, So why are the, the, the three new teams apparently I mean talk about being second in your fifth race I mean they appear not relative to the rest to progress at all. That I don't understand, actually, because there's no reason for them not to. I mean, we have today Mercedes engines available, we have Ferrari engines available, and we have Renault engines available. And the Cosworth. If you want to say, I'll go for a Ferrari or a Mercedes, a well-proven pair, and even a Ferrari engine uh, or, or a Renault engine, you could expect a team, if they've got their engineering right, um, Alan Jenkins did a very good job of designing our car. We had a very good aerodynamicist. Our aerodynamic work was being done in California. We couldn't afford a wind tunnel of our own. And every 10 days, our whole team went to California to work the wind tunnel there. But it was a good quality wind tunnel. And we got good results out of it. And Rubens Barrichello had come back to life from being way down 
morally in his own mind his, his morale was terrible he had left the Jordan team in a very unhappy condition himself I mean and his energy was high so we had a terrific opportunity but I didn't see why that still cannot be done the, you've got to get a driver capable of doing it and Rubens was capable of doing it and that was a masterful race had it been dry, he wouldn't have been able to be in that position, I don't think. But it was it was a great thrill for us, perhaps maybe even the biggest thrill I've had in my racing career. But do you, I mean, are you saying you think it's a combination, well, it's, it's lack of money, lack of a top driver? I mean, at least two of these teams appear to have the money. Well, in my case, we had enough money to do the job that we set out to do. Yeah, but and we had that money in advance for the listeners for the moment or the the website viewers <laughs> uh, we had no over we had no overdraft we never had an overdraft in really? Stuart Grand Prix from when we started until we finished and wow. we had no equity partners so it was all done with a great deal of thought the quality of the people that we had, we had, we were fortunate enough to get people from Ferrari and from McLaren and from Williams who came in and wanted to work for a family firm type of thing. And for whatever reason, and the focus that I had personally and not wanting to fail was very heavy and very big. But we had the right people, not just designing the car, but manufacturing the car, assembling the car and racing the car. We had really good quality people and a great many of them, well, they're still in the paddock today. Sure. Um, as a Scot, another question from a reader here, Jackie. Um, as a Scot, what is your take on Duresta's rookie season in Formula One? Terrific. Very proud that he's a Scotsman with a very Scottish name. <laughs> I tried to get Gary or Frankiti to change his name by depot to <laughs> Jock McTaggart or something. But, he he but, told us this, yeah. But, but uh, uh, the rest of should do the same. But having said that, uh, for a tall man, he's done remarkably well because he's not a man of average height. Uh, a lot of height there to get into the cockpit. Uh, but he's driven very well. And he's got a very good pedigree. Keep in mind, he beat Vettel in the in the Formula Three Championship. Um, he he has had a, a very high profile apprenticeship uh, with a high degree of of success, and he's kept himself very level-headed. Whether it be in DTM or whether it be in the early formulas, um, the Scott, in a way, that's a help. Scots are canny. They never, I don't think they ever over imagine their skills. I don't think Jim Clark ever did. I don't think even Ennis Island ever did. I don't think Dario has. David Coulthard I don't think has. I haven't. And therefore, if you think everybody else is better than you, you've got to try harder. And if you feel that the heather's still growing out of your ears and people are maybe m trying to make fun of you because you're coming from that wee country, you do try harder. And the rest has delivered. He's smooth, he's clean, he's done a good job. Were you surprised that, you know, he's, he came from DTM and adapted to the Formula One car so quickly? I mean, I know he did the occasional lighting last year and, and things like that, but I mean, really... As soon as he got into the car, he was he was quick, wasn't he? Yes, and Norbert Haug recognised that early on, and Mercedes-Benz were keen not to have him go somewhere else. 
uh, I think uh, I mean he's done a better job than anybody has leaving Formula One and going into DTM uh, yeah, that's certainly true. <laughs> and I think that is a bigger jump going from DTM to Formula One in, in real terms. So uh, I, I think it's even more impressive that in fact he's been able to do that. But uh, he's a level-headed young man with considerable determination, uh, which is part of this national <coughs> trait uh, and, and focus. It's not your helicopter circling round waiting for you, is it, Jackie? No, it's not. I, I, I think it's probably one of these rich journalists. <laughs> <laughs> Could well be. Could well be. Um, can we ask you about safety? I, a lot of people will want you to speak a little bit about this. And we have a question from a reader which says that in light of what happened to Kubica, uh, what still needs to be done to improve safety in the lower ranks of motorsport? Well, I don't think anything's been done properly in that respect. I think we're way behind on that. I think that our governing body hasn't gone about as completely as it should have done. They were focused in the high profile ones. The Formula One certainly got everybody's attention, but that was driven either by myself to begin with and then Fred uh, and, and then Sid Watkins. Dr Sid Watkins had a lot more to do with, he took over from where I left off. And whatever any of the other governing bodies people might say and want to take credit for it, had it not been for somebody carrying that sword or that torch, it simply wouldn't have happened. That torch needs to be passed. For example, rallying today, in my opinion, I mean, what happened to Kibitza was a very unusual accident, but not something that you could have seen might never have happened. Mm. Uh, really far far too many obstacles that the speed that they're doing and the and the manner in which rallying takes place and you could say there's no spectators allowed in there and there's somebody always there because how can you control a forest section of so many miles people just need to hide behind the big trees uh, and then they come out because they want to see that car flying in the air and coming down hopefully in a stable fashion but as we see on a regular basis, they get all over the place. And the same applies to circuit racing, that we are not yet in a position where all of our circuits have deformable structures and enough runoff area. Uh, I, I think there has to be a risk in motor racing because the ticket says so. Motor racing will be dangerous on every ticket, it tells you that. But the drivers now have almost become immune to the idea. Mm. I mean... In the case of Sebastian Vettel, since we're doing this transmission now, we're talking 17 years, 5 months, and 24 days since Ayrton Senna lost his life at Imola. That means that Vettel must have been 5 years of age. Yeah. 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 5 yeah. years of age when Senna died. Now, when Senna died, I was at Silverstone. When Jimmy died, I was in Harama doing a safety check on the circuit. These dates will never go out of my mind. And that applies, and I know there was an accident the previous day, uh, uh, but two of the great drivers died, and will never be forgotten for me. 
But now it's taken for granted that people are going to survive from huge accidents, whether it was, it would be Mark Webber last year in Valencia going mm. upside down to a huge height before crashing to the road surface and then hitting. That was a hell of an impact. Hell of an impact into the fence. Huge impact. after the flip. And, and Kibitz's accident in, in, in Canada... Um, yeah. was a huge accident. I, I, I was embarrassed that the television camera stayed on it because I thought that we were looking at a dead man. Yeah. So these accidents of survival are now on record. But I have to tell you, and it's a terrible thing for a racing driver to be saying, the law of averages tell you there's going to be fatalities. Because, you know, ferries sink. You know, yeah. drowning hundreds of people sometimes and the aircraft come out of the air and trains crash. You know, you can't go on with those kind of accidents without the wrong thing happening. And I think everybody has to take note of that and try to do what they can. I'm at the wrong age bracket. I'm not the participant anymore. But while I was, I was the world champion. And I was pushing for safety so hard that you know the negative publicity I got if you are an ardent reader of motorsport. And the, the, the correspondence letters that came in about why doesn't Stuart take his money and go back to Switzerland and sit in front of the fire. Uh, you know, and if the kitchen's too hot, why doesn't he get out? But it had to be done. Somebody had to do it. And if you've seen The Killing Years, that film that came yeah. out recently, and was, by the way, on Singapore Airlines, uh, going up and down to the Grand Prix, um, if you see all the things that were happening at that time, you would want to do things. You would not sure. just want to do them, you would have to do them. So I happened to be in a position at that time we should have people in that position in rallying and we should have them in international racing, whether it be GT sports cars or anything else. We should have them in touring car racing. We should have somebody out there who's really pushing for it because it, it is our responsibility as people within the sport to keep our house in order. Yeah. Well, especially at a time when health and safety and environmental factors are in the headlines every single day. And it really isn't such a big job. And the materials are available today. And I'm sorry, if people can't find the time to do something like that, I, I think it's a bad show. Uh, for example, I think the GPDA do not have enough power right now. The Grand Prix Drivers Association, we had ultimate power. And maybe that's why since I left and people like Jody Schechter left and Denny Holm left, that there hasn't been a GPDA of the strength that it should have influence as it, it did in the past, and I think it should have currently, because we are the people who do understand it and know it. There are scientists who can give you deceleration rates mm. uh, and so forth, but we're the people who are out there, and accidents do happen in the weirdest ways. So I believe there should be a stronger GPDA, for example, and I think there should be stronger competitor um, controls in the other parts of motorsport, whether it be bike racing or whether it be car racing, by the way. An aspect I must say, that concerns me now, as you were saying, just by the law of average, uh, averages, there will always be occasional um, disasters. But I seriously wonder now what the what the response, the public response, you know, of them out there, the, you know, the, the wider world would be if we had a fatality in a Formula One race. Because I remember the difference between when Jill Villeneuve was killed and 12 years later with Senna, the difference was 
ex was pretty extreme. But when Gilles died, there was still another sort of aspect of, well, you know, it's, it's it is very sad, but it does, but you know, but it happens. But when Senna was killed, it was the the world had changed, and it's changed even more, you know, since then. Well, it had been a long time before the the accident the previous the previous day with. Um, with Ratzenberger. With, yes, with Ratzenberger. Uh, because it had been 12 and a half years yeah. before that that a driver had been killed, and that was Elio De Angelis in a testing accident, not in a racing accident. So we need to look at these things, and we need to address them, and we need to act on them. There's no good of us talking about it here in a forum, if you like, without somebody getting on with the job and actually doing it. That, that's not my job anymore. That's for the participants yeah. who are involved on a day-to-day -day basis to be taking care of it. Because I don't think our governing bodies are taking care of it sufficiently well. Right. right. I mean, we've got wonderful medical facilities today and so forth. But well, at Grand Prix, that's a different matter. At Grand Prix, only the best is acceptable. Whether it's firefighting, and we don't have fires now because of our new tanks and so forth, but nevertheless, we've got the best. That's not true of the lesser formulas. And life is no different in cost yeah. from whether it might be the one of the top men or women than it should be for anybody else who loses their life in a racing car. Um, Jackie, this question comes from another of our readers, Paul McGlade. He wants to know whether you still keep up the clay pigeon shooting. I do. I enjoy my clay pigeon shooting. I don't get to do it as often as I used to because I, I've got actually seems less and less time nowadays. But I still love my shooting very much. And uh, clay shooting was good to me. I learned more from my clay shooting than I ever did from my motor racing, I think, in preparing myself to be good at what I did in later life. Right. Really? Mm, you know, in clay pigeon shooting, you know, that target flies away from you. And if it's Olympic trap, it flies away anything between 130 miles an hour acceleration to down to 16, 70 miles an hour. Two different speeds, same angle, same height. To be able to recognize that. But if you miss the target, and let's say it's a 100 target competition, you're only going to get 99. I can make a bad start and still win the race. Um, you know, uh, McCrory can, can have a slice and go into a bunker and come out and, and, and win the championship. And the same applies to tennis or any other sport. Shooting is unforgiven. The loss is there. The miss is never given back. So I learned more discipline, if you like, in my driving and in my business life from shooting than I ever did from motorsport. Interesting. How, how, do, how, how does a good racing driver get himself absolutely focused? I mean, I don't want to go back to Lewis Hamilton, okay? But how does a really top professional racing driver get himself absolutely focused for the 90-minute job he's got to do? I think everybody does it differently. I mean, I learned to do it because I found that emotion was dangerous. I found that if I got too nervous, I related it to my car. If I... If I got myself wound up it affected the car's performance at least I thought that's what was happening but it was really my performance that was was overly nervous and I learned to deflate the rubber ball I describe it an overinflated rubber ball going along the sidewalk or the pavement it's never flat it's always kicking around if it's overinflated it can't you can't control it if you deflate the rubber ball it comes back to your palm in control 
And that's how I got my head going. From the night before a race, I would read a book. And I'm a bad reader. I'm a bit dyslexic, so I can't read much. So it takes me a lot of a lot of concentration to read, which means that it takes me away from worrying about tomorrow's first corner, first lap. So I, I became calmer because of that, and the same would apply in the morning. I would do the same, remove emotion. And when I removed emotion, I d- delivered. And it, it, funny enough, the same thing happens in business today. I'm calmer, with the bigger the drama, the calmer I am. <laughs> and that came from my, my shooting and my motor racing. And, um, you know, I think the drivers today, some of them, uh, you know, are so calm doing Martin Brundle's interviews on the grid, for example. I wonder if there's a big event on at all. (laughs) But part of that, in my day, there was also a fear factor because it was so dangerous. I mean, we had a death in 68. We had a death in every... four consecutive months on the same weekend of every Mm. month, Mm. sixth or seventh of Mm. every month from April until July and we were racing on the wet Nürburgring in August 7th of that year. That was the fifth consecutive month and the first question I asked is everybody all right when I got out of the car? Because we just got so used Mm -hmm. to big accidents. Now, Today, therefore, we were all quite nervous at the beginning of a race. And the wives were all nervous. Mm. And the team managers were all nervous because, you know, is this going to happen again? And that doesn't happen anymore. Everybody now has taken it for granted that it's going to be a safe race. And, uh, you know, every time I do a speech in front of a Grand Prix to a commercial group of people, I say, well, finally, let's hope we're going to have a very enjoyable and... God willing, a safe race. Yeah. The, the, the question that ca- came from a reader that intrigued me most actually was, uh, having read your, uh, your book, which I thought was extremely good, by the way. Winning is not enough. Yeah. Uh, Andy's saying, if you read your life story from the time you started, could you actually believe it? Um, yeah, I guess I would. Because uh, it's been a magic carpet ride. It has been an amazing experience coming from where I did and to today find where I am and still, first of all, loving the sport the way I do, a real enthusiast of the sport still, to have got the material benefits that I've enjoyed and that my family are enjoying today could be beyond my wildest dreams in those days. Uh, So it's been wonderful. Motorsport's been more than generous to me and I, I just get the fullest enjoyment out of it. I mean, I, I love all the things I've got today and, and they've all happened because of my motorsport. You know what one of your mechanics said to me yesterday when I was talking about why did he retire? Did you know? Of course they didn't know. He said, well, after 99 races, it was the smartest thing he could do because in those days you did more than 100 races, you were in serious danger. So I thought that was... Well, I think the danger fact was there, but I, that wasn't why I retired. I was burned out. I mean, I, I had thought a lot about Helen. I had thought a lot about Paul and Mark. And I thought, what, whatever happens to me, my God, that's awful if that happened to me. Fortunately, by then, there was enough money to look after them properly if anything had happened to me. But it would have been a, a, a terrible thing to happen because I was already seeing it mm-hmm. with York and Dying, Nina and Natasha, um, 
you know, with Graham dying to play and Samantha and and Damon and and uh, Bridget. I mean, I thought that was terrible. I saw all of that up close with Betty. All of these things I saw later on, in a way, but while it was happening, it was awful, but you somehow or other blocked it out. But all the other things that have happened in my life have been so stimulating and so rewarding, and I mean, I've just been a very lucky boy. Shall we whiz round the motorsport podcast table, because we've got about five minutes left. Nigel, just for a quick last one with Jackie. Looking back on it, I know you drove for Ferrari, you shared a, a P4 sports car at Brands Hatch, that was, I think that was the only time you ever drove a factory Ferrari, yeah. and you nearly went there for 68. Um, is there a part of you that sort of thinks, ah, I wish maybe I'd just, one, maybe just one year, I wish, I wish I'd been a, a Ferrari driver? No. No? Really? I, I had Ken Tittle. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and and oh. he was bigger than anybody. I, 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 just, from an, just from a sort I know. of... I, I tell you a, what, a, in some respects, you know, I'm very unusual in that I've never owned a fancy car for example. Most people want to have a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or a Bugatti or a Porsche or something like that. I've never had one. I've never had a desire because it was a brand name that I had to be able to have it. I know there was a mystique about going to Ferrari and all that sort of stuff but I I actually never had that. was not a dangling jewel or a diamond at the end of the chain. I never saw it like that. And so I never, I don't think I, there's any, I don't feel as if I've missed anything by not driving for Ferrari. So when you were, when it looked as though you were going to go there, you, what you were thinking of was that that's going to be where the best car available yeah. to me is. And I, it, when I nearly went there, it was with some trepidation. And I was uncomfortable about it in some respects because I, I mean, I've always looked ahead in my life. I don't like having to look over my shoulder. I choose my friends carefully because if you hang out with the wrong people, you're liable to get in trouble. My daddy always told me if you fly with the crows, you're liable to be shot at because <laughs> crows are vermin. <laughs> Driving for Ferrari, I always thought he would be supporting one driver or the other, whether it was Chris or whether it would have been somebody else. And I, I just, I, I wanted to do it because I thought I was going to drive a winning car. And that was why I was going to go there, not because of the, the charisma of Ferrari, but no, no. as it turned out, I made the right decision. Ed, yeah, quick, oh, absolutely. Quick one. Yeah, quick one. If you could choose any era to, to drive in, what would, it, what would it have been going back all the way back to when the World Championship started? Because obviously, <laughs> you know, safety is so much better now, but you know, I'm sure you probably would have enjoyed driving the cars of your era rather than these ones. I think... The era I drove in was probably the most exciting in the sense that I started off with narrow tyres were treaded. I went to slick tyres that were still tubes in them and they went to tubeless. And we went to aerodynamics. We went from a, a, a dark green metallic BRM colour scheme to you know a blue car with Elf and Goodyear and Ford and everybody on it. Commercially, it became a huge sport, which I was in at the beginning on, and therefore got huge experience in the world of commerce. And I don't think I would have got that any other time. I, I think maybe, you know, the time of the Sterling Moss and the Peter Collins and the Mike Hawthorne, for example, must have been good times because they were party boys. <laughs> they, you know, Sterling was married, but only occasionally. Uh, and, 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 you know, that might have been more fun and jet set as it was, and they weren't jets then, but it was the jet set lifestyle. But I think where I was in 
where I have been, it would be absolutely idiocy to say that I wasn't at the right place at the right time. Okay, final question. If you were running Williams today, would you sign <laughs> Kimi Räikkönen? Yes, I would, because we've got a terrific collection of top drivers today, probably better than we've ever had since about the mid-60s. Yeah. And there aren't very many obvious ones outside those chosen few who are almost all committed contractually. And it would be a bit of a gamble, but I think Kimmy is the type of person who would still make it happen. I would take a risk on it. It would be a risk, but I might attract a few sponsors because of it. And I, I might invigorate my team uh, who might not be at their highest moral condition currently. And I think that might be the spark that would bring them on. Um, great facilities they've got. You know, wonderful company in many ways. And I think Kimi Raikkonen would light the fire. I personally think it'd be very exciting. I, I wish we'd. I wish we. This had been television, just for ten seconds there. When when our editor Damien asked Jackie Stewart if you were the manage, the team manager at Williams today, Jackie's face was, "What the hell is he going to ask me?" Anyway, luckily it was the Kimi Raikkonen factor. Uh, we know that Motorsport Magazine readers are uh, many, a great many of them are Kimi fans. So, from uh, Ed Foster, Nigel Roebuck, Damien Smith, myself, and Sir Jackie Stewart fantastic for you to be with us thank you so much and uh, we'll see you next time everybody bye bye motorsport is hosting an exclusive readers evening with audi heroes tom christensen alan mcnish number one engineer howden h haynes and the first female engineer to win le mans lena gade the evening will include a one-off screening of the documentary truth in 24 filmed at the 2008 Le Mans 24-hour race and an open forum with all the Audi stars. Don't miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Call Motorsport Magazine now on 020-7349-8472 for details and to book your ticket or email readersevents at motorsportmagazine.co.uk for more information.